Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. For today's Work in Focus talk, we welcome Dr Nathan Wardell, who will be revealing the story of the controversial artist, writer and critic Wyndham Lewis. He will focus on his portrait of T.S. Eliot, which is currently on display in The Great Spectacle, an exhibition which tells the 250-year history of the summer exhibition, the world's longest-running annual display of contemporary art. In today's talk, Nathan will explore Wyndham Lewis's relationship to T.S. Eliot and why the portrait he made of him was rejected from the summer exhibition in 1938. Nathan Waddell is a senior lecturer in the Department of English Literature at the University of Birmingham. He is current chairperson of the Wyndham Lewis Society and is in the early stages of writing a book on Lewis's politics. So please join me, without further ado, in welcoming Dr Nathan Waddell. Thank you all for coming. Uh, It's a real pleasure to be here. I'm showing this painting a lot virtually on my PowerPoint, but if you haven't seen it yet, it's in the building, uh, and I strongly urge you to go and look at it if you can, because it's very, well, it's much more impressive in person. And before I start, I just want to thank Amy um, for, uh, you know, handling all of this and and, and getting me here safely. Um, Thanks also to Jennifer Shearman, Jessica Rutterford, and David Corbett for uh, making this all work so smoothly. So Wyndham Lewis's 1938 portrait of his friend and fellow modernist T.S. Eliot is one of the most important works that Lewis ever produced. And its importance lies in its failure. It's a highly successful painting, but it failed to convince the hanging committee of the 1938 summer exhibition with the result that it wasn't shown in that exhibition leading to a substantial amount of free publicity for Lewis, unwelcome attention for the Royal Academy, including the resignation of one of its members, Augustus John, some awkwardness for T.S. Eliot, and more exposure of the portrait itself than would probably have been the case had it simply been accepted to begin with. What would Lewis have been without controversy? And what would we think of him now if he hadn't courted controversy almost as a way of life? This is a man, after all, who once very sarcastically claimed that he began the day with a smorgasbord of raw meat, blood oranges, ginger, and vodka, after which he would randomly choose a number from the telephone book and dial it, before violently abusing for five minutes whoever answered the call. And this he pointed out, gets you into the proper mood for the day. Now, such remarks tell us something about Lewis, the satirist and self-mythographer. The fortunes of the 1938 portrait tell us something about Lewis, the self-promoter, and more interestingly, about his need always to have a good, reliable enemy. The portrait itself is a painting of doubles and doubling, and at the heart of all this is the double of sitter and portraitist, each in a beneficial relationship with the other. This is a work of admiration as much as it is a work of self-promotion, the artist proving his mastery over the sitter and through him, through Eliot, an entire poetic tradition by containing him on canvas 
And we can see just how striking the work is by comparing it with one of the later portraits of Eliot from the early 1960s, painted by Sir Gerald Kelly. Now, Eliot himself was very fond of Kelly's portraits, just as he admired Lewis's, but already we can see certain differences between the two. The Eliot of the Kelly portrait is a dignified, noble, and authoritative Eliot. The books or boxes behind him suggesting the weight of accumulated words he had written and which had been written about him throughout his life. And another of the Kelly portraits, portraits suggests much the same. These are establishment Eliots, as it were, Eliots of the status quo. And in the case of this second image, we're already back in the realm of the Lewisian. And this is very clear if we look at Lewis's portrait of his wife reimagined as fate. And this is, again, from 1938. Now, the point of this talk is not to trace lines of potential influence between painters. What I want to do in the next 45 minutes or so is suggest to you that Lewis gained much more than he lost when the events of 1938 didn't go his way. The very fact that we're all here today largely proves the point. So, to start, a word of warning. This talk contains a good deal of criticism of this very institution, the Royal Academy, to which I'm indebted for inviting me here, and to which Lewis was indebted, as he saw it, for giving him so much to mock. And I hasten to add that the criticisms are Lewis's and not mine. Lewis had always had, putting it mildly, a prickly relationship with the Academy and the standards of taste, which in his view it upheld. This is him writing in 1919. British royal academicians portray principally episodes from the school history books and interminable stiff portraits. There's more of this to come. To that extent, Lewis was participating in a time-honoured tradition of ridicule. And there's much in Lewis's numerous diatribes about the Royal Academy that evokes John E. Soden's contemptuous poem of 1875, some of which reads as follows. The toil of months, experience of years, before the dreaded council now appears. It's left their view almost as soon as in it. They damn them at the rate of three a minute, scarce time for even faults to be detected. The cross is chalked, tis flung aside, rejected. Writing about the principles of the avant-garde art movement Vorticism in 1915, the movement with which Lewis was so strongly associated, Lewis insisted that our goddess is beauty. Like any royal academicians, though, we have different ideas as to how she should be depicted or carved. And in 1921, when asked, in his words, to prognosticate as to the character of the next Royal Academy show, Lewis replied, one thing at least we can be sure of, that the next Royal Academy show will be indistinguishable from the last, as the last was indistinguishable from the one before that. Seven years earlier, Lewis had written in his magazine Blast that the task of vorticism was to destroy politeness, standardization, and academic, that is, civilized vision. And it was a task that, to varying degrees, he pursued for the rest of his life. Lewis wrote in his book, The Demon of Progress in the Arts, which was published in 1954, three years before he died, there is nothing to be gained by painting a pleasant, 
a recognizable or comprehensible picture, unless the painter be so inferior an artist and so unimaginative a man that the Royal Academy is, in fact, his natural home. So we're dealing with a man who didn't like what he thought the Royal Academy stood for. Refined salon art, in Lewis's view, of a kind that upheld the aesthetic status quo or that promoted what he deemed a superficially radical iconoclasm. We're also dealing, more interestingly, with a man whose career depended in some measure on the Academy's usefulness to him as a rival. Lewis, who in the late 1920s had styled himself as the enemy and edited a short-lived magazine of the same title, made a career out of making enemies. And an enemy relation involves dependence, each figure in the relation defining the other. To that extent, Lewis needed the Royal Academy, at least in part rhetorically to prove the true extent of his own self-professed talents, just as the Royal Academy needed Lewis to prove its seemingly measured response to his boasting and game-playing. And this is not to say that Lewis treated the rejection of the Eliot portrait simply as an opportunity for self-aggrandizement. His criticisms of the Royal Academy on their own terms were cogent and had substance. It is to say, nevertheless, that Lewis knew what he was doing, and in particular, that he knew that bad publicity is better than none. But before we get to that, I need to tell you about Lewis and Eliot and where they were as contemporaries in 1938. It had been over two decades since Lewis burst onto the pre-war art scene. He remained an avant-garde provocateur, but throughout the 1920s, he turned himself into a cultural critic of what he saw as the most urgent problems of modernity. The key books here, if you're interested, are The Art of Being Ruled, Time and Western Man and Men Without Art, among many others. These are quite hard to get hold of nowadays, uh, but those are the ones with which Lewis made his name. On the literary side, Lewis had made his mark by publishing five novels and 15 or so works of social and cultural criticism. And Eliot had been watching the whole time. He was particularly impressed by Lewis's first published novel, Tar, of 1918, and he continued to rate him as an artist and thinker in the years that followed. On holiday with Lewis in the Loire Valley, Eliot remarked that he did not know anyone more profitable to talk to. And Lewis likewise thought very highly of Eliot. They had long been each other's supporters, publishing each other in their respective journals, and doing what they could to promote each other's careers. In his first autobiography, Lewis being a man who liked to uh, say as much as possible, this one called Blasting and Bombardeering of 1937, Lewis aligned Eliot with James Joyce and Ezra Pound, calling all of them the three most important people he was associated with in and around the years of the First World War. In 1934, Lewis wrote, there is no person today who has had more influence upon the art of literature in England and America than Mr. T.S. Eliot. And what is especially remarkable is the fact that this influence has been exerted equally in the field of theory and the field of practice. 
The remark attests to a high degree of respect. Eliot casting a shadow over the world of letters, just as, in the 1938 portrait, his head casts a shadow over the wall behind him. So what sort of painting is this? It's a monument of modernism, not only in the sense that it is itself monumental, uh, and I mean that pretty literally, if you go and look at it, it's a big painting, but also because we have to look at it imagining Lewis's eyes gazing at Eliot's, one monumental modernist looking at and painting another. Seated in a pose Lewis had many of his sitters assume, Eliot stares into the distance, contemplative and thoughtful. His expression might even be thought of as deadened, and I'll return to that. Abstract shapes rise up on either side of Eliot's head, though the shape immediately to the left of Eliot's shoulder, to the left as you look at it, that is, looks like a freshwater fish of some, of some sort, um, maybe like a chub. There is also what looks like a little bird just above it, and you can see there's the fish, maybe. There's the bird, and there's another little bird there. These clues, these details, are characteristic of Lewis's paintings of the late 1930s and early 40s. And the critic Paul Edwards um, points out that overall they have the appearance of scrolls and represent the male and female poles of creation. The shape on the left-hand side, male, that on the right, female. Eliot doesn't quite look at home in the chair, though whether this is an effect of Eliot's bearing at the time, or if it's an attitude brought into the image by Lewis, is for us to decide. Eliot's hands are crossed, revealing the impressive capacity for capturing the intricacies of fingers and digits that Lewis demonstrated in so many of his portraits. The suit Eliot is wearing isn't the best fit. And maybe this signifies Eliot the critic and poet as slightly misaligned with the modern world. Perhaps Lewis wanted to cast Eliot as one of those figures with size short and infrequent who crowd over London Bridge in Eliot's poem The Wasteland, the suit reflecting this alienated quality. Perhaps Eliot's suit simply didn't fit him very well. Overall, the composition reflects Lewis's estimation of Eliot as one of the men of 1914, one of the figures who, in the artistic hustle and bustle of the immediately pre-war years, did so much to create the modernism with which both Eliot and Lewis have become permanently associated. And I just want to read you, slightly ahead of myself, a letter that Eliot sent to Lewis, where he talks about the the portrait. I learned from the telegraph that your portrait of me has been rejected by the academy. For my own part, I will not disguise my feeling of relief. Had the portrait been accepted, I should have been pleased that a portrait by you should have been accepted by the academy would have been a good augury. At least I should have been gratified by the spectacle of the Royal Academy at Canossa, so to speak, but so far as the sitter is able to judge, it seems to me a very good portrait, and one by which I am quite willing that posterity should know me, if it takes any interest in me at all. And though I may not be the best judge of it as portraiture, I am sure that it is a very fine painting. 
but I am glad to think that a portrait of myself should not appear in the exhibition of the Royal Academy, and I certainly have no desire now that my portrait should be painted by any painter whose portrait of me would be accepted by the Royal Academy. Now, Lewis later described the portrait as an example of strictly representative or naturalist work. And in his words, that's to say, a faithful imitation of nature. To that extent, it contrasted with the departures from nature discernible in his other paintings of the period, many of which appeared in his one-man show at the Leicester Galleries in 1937. And I'm thinking here of paintings like the following. This one, The Betrothal of the Matador, and then one of his true masterpieces, Inferno, which is from 1937. These paintings are in the line of what Lewis called his realist fantasies and works of semi-abstraction. The Eliot portrait, by contrast, is of a style that more or less lets nature be itself as itself. And with this in mind, we can compare it with Lewis's portrait of the philanthropist J.S. McLean, which is from three years later, in 1941, among many others. It's a painting, the Eliot portrait, composed in accordance with Lewis's belief in, quote, how unnecessary it is to strip off a man's skin or to give him three eyes or arms instead of two to make him an object of amazing interest. If the painter is to return to nature, he should perhaps pause to reflect before taking his plunge how diabolically interesting nature is already. Now, is it a sympathetic portrait? This is much harder to say, and this is where a lot of the controversy falls. On its own terms, this is not, on the face of it, an image that flatters. Such things are in the eye of the beholder, to a certain extent, but there is a broad critical consensus, at least, that here Eliot has little of the twinkle in his eye that can be seen in many of the photographs of him, for instance, from the same period. And I said earlier that Eliot looks deadened, maybe. We might also interpret his appearance as bored, solemn, or tired. Then again, we might just as easily interpret it as pensive or resolute. It's sometimes read, or seen, as Lewis's critique of the pose of jurisdictive pomp Eliot often assumed in his essays. And there is something in all of that ambiguity, I think. Eliot's biographer, Lyndall Gordon, has suggested that Lewis painted Eliot's face as if it were a mask, so that he might distinguish Eliot's formal surface from his hooded, introspective eyes and the severe dark lines of his suit from the flesh of his shoulders beneath. The mask, Lewis's signature icon, at once for the falseness of modern life and for the pose required to bear its pressures, here becomes a kind of frontier for Eliot the private man behind the public arbitrator. In short, there is a sense of doubleness here because Eliot lived his life in a doubled and doubling way. Lewis registers that duality because he himself, as we have seen, was no stranger to doubles and to that extent cast Eliot in a frame to which he was sympathetic. Lewis certainly benefited when the painting was rejected by the Royal Academy, as we will see. Eliot was less bothered than we might expect by that rejection, 
Yet he could hardly have denied that the very act of painting the portrait in the first place was a gesture of esteem. This is Eliot not as a rival to Lewis, perhaps, depending on how one looks at it, but as a respected and respectable contemporary. Even so, there is something like an enemy relation in this portrait. Eliot may be respectable, but that doesn't make him immune from attack. His very status makes him more susceptible to Lewis's barbs and arrows, not less. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer, runs the popular saying. For Lewis, it seems to have been a matter of keeping friends by closing in on them as foe and friend. The scrolls of history rising up on either side of Eliot's head may be a gesture to his poetic and religious valuations of the past, which Lewis mocked at length. And whereas Eliot had insisted in his celebrated essay, Tradition and the Individual Talent of 1919, that the emotion of art is impersonal, Lewis firmly disagreed. Although he was suspicious of too simplistic a model of expressive artistic selfhood, nevertheless he concluded that there should be a continuity between artist and work, that the artist, and these are Lewis's words, should exaggerate, a little artificially perhaps, his beliefs, rather than leave a meaningless shell behind him. And it isn't pushing a point too far, in my view, to see the Eliot of this portrait as a man on the cusp of becoming just such a shell, a husk brought about through an investment in what Lewis saw as the wrong kind of poetics. No poet, writes Eliot, no artist of any art has his complete meaning alone. His significance, his appreciation, is the appreciation of his relation to the dead poets and artists. Lewis's Eliot is a portrait of the artist as a mortal man. Now, Lewis received his notification of rejection in the third week of April, and it was a matter of days before the newspapers caught wind of the events. A rejection became a sensation. The Daily Herald reported the predicament as a case of cat trapped by mouse. It's not Mr. Lewis, famous fulminator, philosopher, wit, and artist, who has been rejected by the Royal Academy, its correspondent wrote. It is the Royal Academy which has been rejected by Mr. Lewis. It was all a plot to catch the Royal Academy, and the Royal Academy has been caught. That same paper quoted Lewis as saying, if I had painted Highland cattle, they would probably have accepted the picture, but it's a portrait racket more than anything else. The controversy quickly attracted the attention of Augustus John, one of Lewis's old mentors. And John wrote to Lewis in disbelief. I read yesterday of the rejection of your picture. This is the limit, and I resign with gratitude to you for affording me so good a reason. John resigned from the Academy on the 23rd of April with the following statement. I very much regret to make a sensation, but it cannot be helped. Nothing that Mr. Wyndham Lewis paints is negligible or to be condemned lightly, I strongly disagree with this rejection. It is an inept act on the part of the Academy. The rejection of Mr. Wyndham Lewis's portrait by the Academy has determined my decision to resign from that body. I shall henceforth experience no longer the uncomfortable feeling of being in a false position as a member 
of an institution with whose general policy I am constantly in disagreement. I shall be happier and more honest in rejoining the ranks of those outside where I naturally belong. Lewis was later quoted as saying, this resignation should be a mortal blow to the Royal Academy if it is possible to use such an expression about a corpse. This image is a picture of John leaving his house to meet Lewis, uh, who had found himself in the midst of a very useful controversy. I just wanted to draw your attention to the first line. Mr. Augustus John, a look of furious indignation on his face. Another letter from Lewis, this time to the editor of the Daily Telegraph. Sir, I must, with your leave, reply to the remarks of the Royal Academy spokesman reported in your issue of Saturday regarding my portrait of the poet, Mr. T.S. Eliot. The picture was rejected, he affirmed, because it was not as good as others that were passed. But it could hardly be supposed that he would say that, uh, say that it had been rejected, because it was better than the pictures that were accepted. That would be too much to expect. On the other hand, the rather startling revelation that the Royal Academy has been criticized for going too far in the direction of modernity is another matter. The public, which is really as depressed by platitude as anybody, will be pretty indignant, I venture to think, when it learns the state of affairs, that this fiery institution is held back and condemned to be dull on account of influential criticisms which it is unable to ignore. Having come under suspicion for its disquietingly subversive tendencies, its unbridled modern feeling, great care has to be taken not to seem too advanced. There has been no outcry in the press, as far as I am aware. Not a whisper of this has reached the public ear. If the Academy was indeed going gay until checked by timely criticism, no one, not an initiate, has detected it. We have, I think, the right to ask for names. Who or what are these influences imposing such humiliating standards upon one of our national institutions, standards which we all deplore? A change of management is indicated. Now, those moved to comment on this situation included Winston Churchill, who in a speech given at a banquet held at the Royal Academy on the 30th of April, thumbed his nose at John's sniffing, snorting, and foaming, as he put it, before insisting... I won't do a uh, Churchill voice. Uh, the country possesses in the Royal Academy an institution of wealth and power for the purpose of encouraging the arts of painting and sculpture. It would be disastrous if the control of this machine fell into the hands of any particular school of artistic thought which would exclude all others. Lewis was having none of it. He dismissed Churchill's remarks as so much blather, arguing that the Royal Academy had quite obviously fallen into the hands of just such a school of artistic thought, which is exclusive in the narrowest commercial sense that it is regarded by most artists as a disaster, as he put it. He may or may not have had in mind an image of the hanging committee of the kind immortalized by Frederick William Elwell in his 1938 painting, the Royal Academy Selection and Hanging Committee, a diploma piece accepted by the Academy in 1939. Whatever this image is, an image of diversity it is not. <laughs> now, on the same day that Churchill gave his banquet speech, a review by Lewis of the Royal Academy summer show appeared in the Star newspaper. 
Reiterating his remarks of 1921, so this is two decades later, Lewis begins his review by saying, this year's Royal Academy is no better and no worse than any other I have seen. Indeed, one has the sensation that it is the same exhibition one saw last time. He continues, out of 1,587 exhibits, I am able to pass 32 as fit. It would not matter if the public were not led to believe by every device of mass publicity and official sanction that this show every year represents the best art in England and that the letters R-A stand for real artist. That is the trouble. This is Lewis making much the same point in a newsreel clip. For the bridal retinue, there was a motor coach. A painting causes a furore. The painting is of T.S. Eliot the poet. The artist is Wyndham Lewis. And on account of its rejection, Augustus John resigns from the Royal Academy. Both he and Mr. Lewis feel the same way about that august body. Mr. Wyndham Lewis, is this picture a very unorthodox piece of work? Is it unorthodox? No, it is not unorthodox. Uh, naturally, it does not conform to the uh, standards of atrocious silliness of the Royal Academy. Do you think its rejection will affect its value in the eyes of the public? I think not. Now for the cup. Now he really went for the jugular in a book called Wyndham Lewis the Artist from Blast to Burlington House, which came out in 1939. The book opens with a reproduction of the Eliot portrait and concludes with a short section on its rejection. And Lewis was characteristically pugnacious. The Royal Academy is the snobbish commercial symbol of British indifference to the arts of painting, sculpture, architecture, and design. It is how our particular plutocracy expresses its patronizing contempt for the things of the mind when those things take a visual form. So long as that crushing and discouraging symbol of malignant and arrogant mediocrity is there, a good artist in England will be an outcast, a rebel, as it is called. Romantic, is it not? But how much time it wastes, time that should be spent in painting pictures, not in writing essays and letters in defense of whatever one can get done. I believed before I, as it were, personally encountered the RA, that there was an outside chance that, seeing how down on its luck it was, this institution might be in a mood to reform itself a little and admit a few canvases by outsiders in order to attract the more serious public to its exhibition. And of course, it would, all, it would be all one to me where pictures of mine hung, Burlington House, nightmare of fatuous vulgarity as it is, could not be worse than the more intellectually pretentious small galleries to be found immediately in its rear. But there we are. Oh. Whatever else we might have to say about this passage, Lewis certainly leaves no doubt about where his sympathies lie. A year after its rejection from the Royal Academy, Lewis's Eliot portrait was purchased by Durban Municipal Art Gallery in South Africa. And Lewis wrote in a letter to Naomi Mitchison around the same time that the events had been abominable. Now, one of the things that all of this helps us see very clearly from the angle of culture, as it were, is just how critical of allegedly conservative organizations Lewis really could be. A year before the events I've been focusing on, Lewis wrote that he wouldn't lift a finger to conserve any conservative institution. He continued, 
I think they ought to be liquidated without any exception at all. And remarks of this sort create problems for commentators who are inclined to see Lewis as a simple reactionary. Now, his politics aren't my subject today. Uh, I've lots to say about that, but there's too much to say right now. Lewis wanted to conserve art, is what I'll say, but not an establishment model of artistry. And his, and his skepticism about so-called conservative institutions extended to and fully enveloped, as he saw it, the Royal Academy, which he kept as a treasured enemy to the end. This is Lewis reiterating the terms of his antipathy in 1950. Before the war, there was scarcely an art critic who did not reprove, ridicule, or scold the Royal Academy exhibition, when every spring it displayed, according to custom, its meretricious wares, its glittering diamonds, its juicy satins, its glittering brass hats, and sketchy peeps at nature. An institution of the same order and quality as Madame Tussauds, though this is rather unfair to the waxworks. Elsewhere, he wrote, the pictorial habits of the Royal Academy are stamped as products of, to use the communists' language, this is all Lewis's words, bourgeois civilization more plainly than anything else I can think of on earth. Now, I've often wondered whether Lewis was protesting too much. After all, there's more than a hint in all of this of a man clinging on to an enemy he couldn't quite do without. He needed the Royal Academy just as any good pugilist needs a sparring partner. What Lewis lost in his exchange with officialdom, as he saw it, in 1938, was a measure of acceptance by an establishment he had always provoked. What he gained was notoriety, perhaps, albeit the notoriety of a figure who easily and repeatedly made a virtue of being called into disrepute. This is the Lewis many of us acknowledge, even if we don't agree with him. It is the Lewis who may have painted Eliot not only because Lewis wanted to monumentalize a friend and highly esteemed peer, the literary modernist painted in fine modernist form, but also because Lewis wanted to see if modernist culture more broadly might have reached a moment of official recognition. Behind Lewis's disappointment at the Royal Academy, may have been a double frustration at his own lack of acceptance and obliquely at Eliot's, at least as he took shape in the painting. The frustration may have been because he knew that acceptance here would mean the end of a certain kind of mutiny. Better, perhaps, to remain out of the establishment's doors. Outside, he was freer. Thank you. <laughs>